In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household in Qajim. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. After a break that we took for the season of Ashura and Muharram, this is our first lecture back. I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He accepts everyone's deeds, your participation, your contribution, your efforts during this season, and that you leave it spiritually uplifted and recharged, inshallah. Maybe a very quick recap of where we were in the series. From the beginning, we said that we are focusing in this series for the time being on the first theme, which is the theme of knowledge and reason in Islam. And after a quick overview of the importance of rationality or reason and knowledge in Islam, we looked at the alternative, which is foolishness and ignorance, jahl, to see that it is not considered to be an option in our religion. Therefore, we come back to knowledge and reason as the only alternative. At that point, we wanted to see what does it mean when we say that this is Islamic knowledge or Islamic reason. And we found two specific criteria that make knowledge or reason Islamic. And as we're going through the series, we're discovering many more secondary criteria. But the two primary conditions for knowledge or reason to be Islamic is that first, is that it leads to action, and secondly, that it is acquired and used with sincere intentions. And we spent, I think, inshallah, enough time on both of these conditions to explain what we mean by them. Therefore, when we come back to religion, we see that if the only option is knowledge, we must start acquiring this knowledge, and so the first practical step becomes to become ourselves a learner, someone who acquires knowledge in Islam in the Islamic sense. Given that, if the first step is going to be to acquire knowledge in Islam, we spent a little bit of time to see what does it mean to be a learner in this religion. Someone who is seeking to acquire knowledge, someone who is seeking to use their rationality or their reason. And the conclusion of that part of becoming a learner, becoming a seeker of knowledge, is that we are ourselves becoming a scholar or a teacher. Not necessarily in the technical, formal sense of presenting ourselves to the world yet as someone who is a technical expert, someone who can speak on behalf of religion. And this will be confirmed today, inshallah, that the moment we have a certain amount of knowledge, our religion says, you are therefore knowledgeable in those things that you know. Otherwise, no one is a scholar, as in someone who carries knowledge in the absolute sense, in the full perfect sense, unless you are an infallible. And so the moment you acquire a certain amount of truth, a certain amount of knowledge, you are already falling in the category of being a scholar. And one of the duties of the scholar, as we saw, is that you spread the knowledge that you have, is that you teach. And so this opened the door to now this second role that we have to look into, the role of the teacher, the role of the scholar. And when we looked at that role, and we are still in that role right now, we're at perhaps lecture 23, I think, around the teacher and the scholar in Islam, we are spending a little bit longer on this specific topic for a number of reasons. The first is that it is important in itself. We are opening our minds, we're opening our hearts to someone. 
We are allowing them to influence us. We're allowing them to dictate and to mold how we think, and perhaps even more importantly, what we believe, how we believe. And because of this, and so because of this, it becomes of the utmost importance to see what religion tells us when we're choosing who to allow to influence us in that way. Whether we're aware of it or not, we are being influenced by anyone that we are accepting as a speaker, as a teacher, as a scholar, and so on and so forth. So there is an intrinsic importance to that role in itself. But perhaps more practically, as we said, for ourselves, we are somewhere on that spectrum of being a scholar. So even though we are talking about the teacher and the scholar, in truth, what we are talking about is what we should be ourselves, what we should aspire to become ourselves now that we are on this path. You are somewhere on that spectrum. You may have a little bit of knowledge, an intermediary amount of knowledge, a very advanced and a huge quantity of knowledge. You're somewhere on that spectrum of having knowledge. Therefore, you are somewhere on the spectrum of being a scholar, a alim. You are alim in the things that you know. You have ilm in. And so when I look at the attributes, the characteristics, and the duties of the scholar, I'm not just looking outwardly. I'm not just looking for the person that I want to accept as a scholar and a teacher. I'm also looking inwardly that these are supposed to be my own characteristics as well. This is what I'm supposed to become now that I carry this knowledge and I'm on this path, on this journey of knowledge. Given this, we said therefore that we have to start looking at the characteristics of the scholar, of the teacher in Islam. And I don't know if we want to close the door or not, but uh, there's a lot of mosquitoes. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So as we said, when we look at the characteristics of the scholar, one of the things to keep in mind is that we wanted initially to make a distinction between two ways of looking at the scholar. One way is what are the characteristics, what are the traits of the scholar? And then we want to look at what are the duties of the scholar? What are their responsibilities? But in truth, these two things are completely overlapping. When we say this is one of the characteristics of the teacher, the scholar, the person who now has knowledge in religion, it should go without saying that this is also a duty upon them to acquire and to act in a certain way. So when we say characteristic, it's also a duty or a responsibility. And we covered many of those, including, for instance, and we're not going to go into the details, just a quick recap, ensuring that this person has the right beliefs, that they have a high level of spirituality, that they give a lot of importance to the afterlife, that they have a high degree or a high level of manners in general in life, the manner they conduct themselves. And we saw in our religion that there is a lot of a hadith, a lot of instructions that we have that are specifically teaching us how to distinguish between a true scholar and a fraudster, a fake scholar even though the person may carry a lot of knowledge, which tells us that it's not just about the amount of knowledge that you carry, that there are other characteristics that are perhaps even more important than the amount of knowledge that you carry to be a scholar or a teacher. And the second point of that, when religion is making so much of a point to say, there are those who are not true scholars, not in the Islamic sense, even though they may have a lot of knowledge, is that you have to go out of your way to find them. Because in the majority of cases, they will pass as scholars. And in fact, if you go through history, you see that they became the true scholars in the official sense. They were hired, they taught, they wrote, they published, they influenced. People accepted them as scholars. But when you go back to the characteristics that our religion gives, you see that it doesn't match these people. They were not in it for spirituality. They, not, they were not in it for guidance. They did not really care about the afterlife. There were things that are much more important to them. 
or they follow the ultimate test which we mentioned earlier and we're going to come back to perhaps next lecture when we talk about the final duties when we talk about the social aspect or the political aspect of the duties of the scholar and we see how and we talked about this multiple times already they may be used by the political power the political rule right and so this is where you see that our distinct our religion has made very important distinctions to help us be very clear in who matches the characteristics of the true scholar and who doesn't who is the fraudster and we went through multiple narrations from Imam Ali and others about this we talked about a lot of the characteristics such as the person having knowledge having compassionate patience if you will remember having a high ability to remain silent and to be very selective in what to say and when to say it and to whom to say it and in what way and we said that a fraudster is usually the one who is going to lack these abilities or lack these skills or characteristics in addition to which when we look at the general character we see that there may be jealousy arrogance too much importance given to the material or the worldly dimension of this world we said in the general conduct of the person that they cannot be living a life that seems to be without real meaning or a life where the most important aspects or an exaggerated amount of time or energy or money is spent just on leisure and worldly things and giving importance to this life or things that don't seem to be very important they seem to be even foolish right this does not match if you actually carry knowledge about god about the afterlife about what matters these things cannot be your priorities and we even saw a number of hadith for instance that say about the importance of weeping for instance and how this is one of the traits and characteristics where you recognize some of these truer scholars for instance that they are truthful that they are competent and when we talked about competence we said that there's a huge link here to be made this is other topics but we talked about it the importance of a religion gives to competence our religion wants the right person for the right job at all times so that includes knowledge but that includes specialized knowledge in every field this is your competence but it goes beyond knowledge you remember the hadith that talked about the person who should take these positions of importance these positions of rule especially when others are concerned and they have to make decisions for them that this is someone who can handle a lot more that they have a lot more experience that they have a lot more wisdom that they have a lot more knowledge and competence and we saw a number of characteristics mentioned in there as well we talked about the importance of the person the scholar this teacher being a role model someone you can actually look up to that's one and two that they lead by action they don't just lead by words that they have the best or the purest of manners that they are the least greedy about things related to this world and then we started talking about duties and this is where we left things inshallah this is what we're trying to wrap up as quickly as possible so in addition to the fact as we said that characteristics in themselves are all of them duties we saw that there is a number of narrations that clearly talk about specific things being the duties or the responsibilities of the scholar and of the teacher and we already mentioned that this is supposed to go beyond just being a good muslim right we're talking now about those who are the best representatives of religion they're supposed to be the ones who are the sources of your knowledge your sources of religion so this is above and beyond everything that we already know about being a good muslim and a good believer okay so inshallah this is clear we talked at length about the importance of humbling yourself to be modest as someone who carries knowledge the more knowledge you have the more it should show in your humility and in your modesty if it increases you in arrogance 
and feeling superior to others or acting superior to others, then this is the wrong type of knowledge or it's having the opposite effect that it's supposed to on your soul. We talked about the importance of teaching or of spreading the knowledge that you have and not putting barriers and not making it difficult for certain types of people, for instance, to access your knowledge for all sorts of reasons so that it becomes exclusive, especially exclusivity around money. This is mentioned explicitly in some narrations so that only the rich can have access to your knowledge, for instance. Okay, you're supposed to go out of your way to try to spread the knowledge that you have, to make it as accessible as possible to others. And we went through the, the different types of scholars, we mentioned them, I'm going to skip over that, inshallah, that was clear. And we continue to talk about when this person is teaching, this person is talking, that they are selective in what they share, that they share wisely, that they share with mercy and humility, and that they share patiently, not impatiently and with arrogance because it may lead to breaking people, and we talked about that. Muhammad talks about this. We spent a bit of time talking about the story of Prophet Musa and all the lessons that we draw from that when he is a messenger and a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meeting someone who has types of knowledge that he himself does not have and to what extent he's willing to go to acquire that knowledge, right? We talked about the importance of avoiding any type of discrimination in society or as a scholar or as a learner unless it is based on knowledge which becomes a true criteria based on which you can actually discriminate. Otherwise, you're not allowed to discriminate. We talked about the importance of recognizing ignorance, recognizing the limitations of what we know and being clear that what we know is much more than what we don't know. And if you do not have that attitude, then you're probably not meeting the criteria of the true scholar that you think you focus just on what you know as opposed to focusing on what you don't know. It puts you in a completely different attitude towards yourself, towards God, towards people, and towards knowledge itself. We spent more than one lecture talking about the importance of refraining, of not jumping into things that are questionable, that are doubtful. When in doubt, stop. And we said this is very important to recognize the true scholar. And Hilbeit were saying this is one of the main ways, one of the easiest ways to recognize the true scholar is going to be to see who stops when there are precautions to take and who jumps into them. There are people who say there's a doubt here, they jump into it. Something is questionable, they do it. And others, they stop. They say, if it's a doubt, you stay away. And we saw that this goes way beyond just the teacher, the scholar, and knowledge. This is a general principle in our religion and we talked in general about it at length. We went through some verses of the Holy Quran. You'll remember, I think, from Surah Al-Isra, we talked about Don't even think about approaching. Do not approach. It doesn't say don't do it. Don't go clear, don't go close to that. Stay away, right? This is a general principle in our religion, the principle of precaution. It tells you don't go in the gray zone. It doesn't say don't go in the red zone. The red is clearly forbidden. But there's maybe gray around it. It says you avoid the gray. And so this is one of the ways to recognize the true scholar. That they care enough. They give enough importance to this. They understand the risk associated that they would never even go close to that gray. And then Bait repeatedly said in the narrations, it's by being in the gray that you slip into the red that you slip into the forbidden. If you did not go near the gray, you would not end up slipping into the red in the first place. And we all know what that means. You apply it to every situation of haram, and you can right away tell what are the things that can potentially lead to the haram. Well, avoid them. These become the introductory actions. These become the precursors, the premises, the enablers. Don't open the door to the enabler. That's a questionable, doubtful thing. If you look at it, you'll see it's doubt. There's question around this. There's a question mark around this. It's not clean and clear. Our religion says, as a general principle, you avoid this gray. So if you are a scholar, 
Of course you're going to be even more careful about avoiding the gray and making this a principle by which you live your life. And we talked about the importance of gentleness, softness, kindness when teaching. And this was part of the rights of the learner upon the teacher. You'll remember from Mam Sajjad when he talked about this and he was saying how in truth it went both ways. The ahadith. The ahadith were saying you have to show gentleness and respect and kindness to whoever teaches you, so to the teacher, but we were focused here more on and towards the scholar, the learner. The person who is learning from you, you have to show them respect and show them humility and show them kindness and to be gentle with them. And Imam Sajjad went further and he was saying that you are a custodian of something that God gave you. This is not your knowledge. God has given you something and you have to act as a custodian over that and share with, in a gentle way with kindness, with humility and with mercy, Imam Sajjad was saying. And then there were two versions, as we said, of the, the hadith. In one of them, the Imam says, if you do not do that, if you do not share, or if you use that knowledge, but in a way that is harsh or rude or disrespectful, and you break the Imam, that's the word that he uses, you break this person. You, you make them push away, you make them reject, dislike knowledge or dislike religion. You broke the person. Because of you, they're less interested in religion or less interested in knowledge. The Imam uses the word break. If you break this person, if you continue to teach in a way that does not show boredom, that does not show being tired, that does not show frustration and impatience, then you have honored what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you and you're a true scholar. Otherwise, the Imam at the end of the two different versions He's saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to, first of all, He's going to remove that which He has given you. He's going to take away that knowledge. One. And two, He's going to take away the radiance of that knowledge. There's something around that knowledge about you. A halo, a radiance, a light, an insight that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will also remove. And thirdly, the Imam said, and He will remove you from the hearts of people. So that even if you have all the knowledge in the world and you talk, no one cares or listens. Or if they listen, it doesn't affect them. It doesn't enter into their hearts. And if you can't enter into the hearts of people, that's it. It means everything that you're saying is useless. It's not producing any result. The Imam saying, this is your doing. It's because you are not a good custodian of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you. And then we ended with the story of Prophet Isa when he washed the feet of the disciples. That was the last hadith that we went through before stopping. And we said Prophet Isa asked the disciples to allow him to do something. He has a request. Would they honor it? They said yes. So he started washing their feet. And then he told them, I'm doing this so that you learn how a teacher is supposed to treat those who are learning from them. And this is what I will expect you to do after I am gone. This is how you will bring the knowledge to the people. Not to be arrogant. I want you to be the humble ones. I want to be, I want you to be the ones at the service of the people. They feel that you are at their service. Okay, so we ended with that and inshallah that was clear. And then he said in that hadith that wisdom is cultivated with humility. It's like a plant. If you want to cultivate that, how do you cultivate it? Not with arrogance. You have to cultivate it with humility. And that the crops, just like knowledge, just like wisdom, the crops, they grow in soft land. They don't grow in the mountains and the rocks. Right? So if your heart is hard, nothing is going to grow in it. And if you treat people with harshness, you can't make that plant, that seed grow into a plant. That was the hadith that we ended with. So we continue, inshallah, where we left off at that point with this idea of the gentleness, kindness, mercy, patience in teaching. Of course, 
there are going to be very clear applications from this to everyone who receives any information from you, especially if you consider that to be Islamic information. Whether they are strangers, and we're going to see some hadith starting with that, or whether they, whether they are family members. So a lot of what we are saying actually can be used when people ask about parenting in Islam. This is parenting in Islam. And that's why we said whether you like it or not, you carry a certain amount of knowledge. And whether you like it or not, you are going to be someone's teacher. You will influence them with the knowledge that you have. And this is when all of these characteristics and all of these traits have to be there. Otherwise, you won't be an effective teacher. You won't be an effective parent. You won't be an effective sibling. You're trying to influence people with what you know. It won't work if you're not meeting these criteria. Okay, so inshallah we're going to see some examples of that. And of course it goes both ways. So me as a learner, and we saw the importance that Islam is now giving to the teacher, and we haven't focused on that yet. This is going to be the next heading. We're headed towards, we're going to finish the duties inshallah. Today we're almost inshallah going to wrap it up. And then when we continue inshallah next week, we should wrap up the duties of the teacher and we can move towards the rights and the merits of the teacher. And that will be a lot clearer. But one of the clearest examples of this for all of us, whether you like it or not, and we talked about this, sometimes someone is teaching you something and quickly or not, later in life, you even surpass them in your knowledge, even if they're a huge scholar. But the same thing applies to your parents. Today you might know a lot more than them about the things that they taught you. But our religion says, if they taught you anything, then they are your teacher. And now you are indebted forever to whatever they taught you. That's it. You're in their debt. There's nothing you can do to relieve yourself of that debt. Someone taught you something. It's there forever. You must honor the fact that they taught you. Because our religion gives that sacred status, that holy status to knowledge. This is what they gave you. They give you that holy thing, that knowledge. And so you must honor that and respect that forever. Okay, so this applies to the teacher and the scholar, and it applies to parents, older siblings, anyone who came into your life and did this. Okay, so the hadith. The first hadith from the Holy Prophet he says, وَإِنَّ رِجَالًا يَأْتُونَكُمْ مِنْ أَطْفَارِ الْأَرْضِ يَتَفَقَّهُونَ فِي الدِّينِ فَإِذَا أَتَوْكُمْ فَاسْتَوْصُوا بِهِمْ خَيْرًا The Holy Messenger tells his companions in this hadith, Indeed, people are your followers. There are men, or there are people, there are men who will come to you from the extremities of the earth, from distant lands seeking knowledge in matters of religion. He's telling his companions 14 centuries ago. So when they come to you, act well with them. So I, based on my advice or my instructions to you, act well with them, or the other way to say this is urge one another to act well with them. Take care of them. This is part of being gentle and being kind. And this part, inshallah, is clear. But there's a lot more going on in this hadith. First, this confirms what we've been saying. The Holy Prophet, the hadith says, he was talking to his companions in general. Who would say he's talking to the Muslims. By being a Muslim, this has been our theory from the beginning. By being a Muslim, you should be a learner. Two, by being a learner, you are also a teacher. Then this hadith makes sense. The Holy Prophet is telling them, you learn this religion, and eventually there will be people who will come to you from all over the world. They will come to you looking for this religion, to learn about this religion. So when they do, treat them well. 
Don't be rude, don't be harsh, don't discriminate, don't act arrogantly, teach them kindly. And make sure with one another that you do that. Remind each other. There's a wasiyah from me to you and from you to me. I remind you and you remind me. By the way, don't forget the Holy Prophet said, treat them well. Give them the knowledge, share the knowledge with them. Another point, very quickly, I think many of us would probably take this for granted, especially those of us who are born into Muslim families, into Shia families, families where there is a certain amount of knowledge already, for instance. It doesn't matter. We take it for granted. You grow up into it, you open your eyes and you are being fed this knowledge. Because of the lifestyle, because of the culture, because of because of certain family members, whatever it may be. The Holy Prophet is saying you have a duty. You can't take it for granted. There are people who are desperate for this knowledge. They will come to you from the ends of the earth to learn it from you. So this is the first point. Don't take it for granted. When there are people who are willing to travel and to come to you to learn a little bit of that knowledge. To you it's something, and this is a reminder, that's why I keep saying, all of us, we have something that we can share. There's something that you can tell others. There's something you can help others with. We take it for granted, but others are desperate for it. The next point, and this one is a little bit indirect. The Holy Prophet is talking to his companions and he tells them there are people who are going to come to learn knowledge from you. We all know the incessant, the constant discussions around the companions of the Holy Prophet and so on and so forth. Perhaps this is one of the criteria that we can easily use. The Holy Prophet is saying, so teach them and act and be kind towards them. So that criteria becomes how much I learn from this religion that I can pass on to others. And I can be kind towards them. And I do not discriminate. So we have to go through the companions and see which ones acted in this way. They are the companions that are now obeying these instructions of the Holy Prophet and which ones didn't. Okay? That's another point. A third point. This third point is, this is a prophecy from the Holy Prophet. Sometimes we ask, what are the prophecies of the Holy Prophet, whether in the Quran or beyond? At that time, this was not happening. People were not coming from the ends of the earth to learn this religion. Today they are. When the Holy Prophet is saying this, he's basically telling them this will happen at a time when this religion may live and may die. It's not that big of a religion yet. It's not a world religion. And the Holy Prophet is telling them they will come and they will want to learn. So behave in that specific way with mercy and compassion and gentleness with them. And the last point, of course, and I referred to it already, is that there is a collective dimension to this. That the Holy Prophet is making sure that you remind each other of it. That this is perhaps collective work. It's not just about me as an individual teaching others. Maybe we have to sit and think collectively, together. What does it mean for us to teach others about this religion? What's the best way to do it? How can we put our efforts together to teach others when they need this knowledge from us? Not that you go in your corner and you do your thing, and I go in my corner and I do my thing. The Holy Prophet is forcing us by saying, for Talk about, talk about it, remind each other, make sure you're all doing this. The Holy Prophet is forcing the collective discussion. And in today's world, this is extremely important. The more we can go beyond individual effort to collective effort, the more we should be able to see actual fruits of our efforts. The next hadith. This one, a little bit more focused on what we were talking about, the youth. Imam al-Sajjad when he talks about the right of the youth, he says, The right of the young. And I'll break it down because it can mean a lot of things. The 
This is the right of the youth, the youngster on you. Then he says, says the right of the young is to treat them with mercy is to treat them with compassion this is the right of the young over you and then he says in teaching them so how do I act with mercy with the youth in teaching them and I'm going to come back to this it can mean two things and they're very important both of them and then he says and forgiving them and concealing their faults and showing kindness or gentleness to them and helping them or assisting them they need your help each one of these is a whole theory it would, would require at least a lecture if not more each one of these statements by itself in general when we say youth or young, what does the Imam mean here? It can mean infancy, which means basically from the time you were born until you are two years old. It can mean early childhood. So this is still under six years old, two to six. Then they call it middle childhood, seven to about 12. And then you start entering into adolescence, your teenage years, which goes between 12 and 16 to 18. And then your early adulthood. So the years following that. Depending on who you are, all of that can be the young. Of course, the way you apply it is going to be different. How I apply teaching with mercy and concealing the faults and helping and doing, applying all of this is going to be different for a child of three years old or six years old or 12 or 18. But all of this can apply. And I say this in general, there's no time to break it down. But especially as a parent, for all of us inshallah, one day, as a parent, you will have a child who will be two and they will be six and they will be 12 and they will be 18. You will need to apply all of that at all those times. But you will have to apply it appropriately at those times. In the way that is suitable for that age. So this doesn't stop because you are two years old or because you are 16. This is important to realize as a parent and as a community. Which brings us to the next point. That this is part of a general theory of education in Islam. If you were to say, what is the Islamic theory of education? Today there's a whole lot of theories out there. You have Jean Piaget, and you have Montessori, and you have many others. You see the stages of development of a child, the best way to teach people, what if they're children, what if they're adults. There's whole, a whole field today called andragogy, where you teach pedagogy to adults, for instance. What is the theory? How does it work? What are the principles, what are the foundations, what are the applications? This is the theory of education. This is part of the theory of education in Islam. One, and on the other side, specifically, the theory of parenting in Islam. Okay, next. When the Imam says, the youth have a right over you, or the young, as-sahir, haqq as-sahir. Who's the sahir? He doesn't say. So in other words, in our religion, we all collectively have this duty. Whether you have children or not, you are responsible for making sure that the child receives mercy and compassion. And the child receives teaching. And the child's faults are concealed. And that they are supported and assisted and helped. This is a collective duty. You have to look into that and 
contribute to that just by being a Muslim. If I'm a Muslim, if I'm part of the Muslim Islamic community, then this is something that is a right over me. This is what the Imam said. Of course, if this is my child, then this becomes much more important. Because now in addition to this being a youth, a youngster, they are my youth. I have an additional responsibility towards them. But even if it is not my child, I'm still responsible for this. And perhaps the easier way to understand this is simply to put it in this category in our religion called al-wajib al-kifai. Right? Where there is a duty that is communal. A duty that is collective. And I'm sure many of you know how this works. This is a duty that usually is presented in fiqh based on sufficiency. So it's obligatory upon everyone until it is sufficiently being done, then it's no longer obligatory on everyone. Sufficiently, in what way? In quality and in quantity. Depending on what the duty is, in some cases, you only need one person to step up and do it, and you would say, generally, we would all say, this is being done sufficiently. Someone stepped up. It's enough. That's sufficient. In other cases, it's not enough. We might need five people, or ten people, or two hundred people to step up. Then we can say this is sufficiently being fulfilled. This is in quantity. And quality, maybe two hundred people are stepping up, and the quality is still not there. They're all incompetent. And the competent person is sitting on the side. Or those who are competent are not coming into the equation. That's a problem. It means that the obligation, and in fact, the sin, the responsibility, is still there. It's, we're not being discharged from it as a community. Because it's not being sufficiently done. So this could be quantity, it could be quality. It depends on what the thing is that we're talking about. What are like examples to make it practical? A very simple example, we should all know this. If someone says salam, we're all sitting here and someone walks in. People are always criticizing me, complaining that I answer the salam when people walk in. And I shouldn't. But sometimes I'm afraid that no one answers. If no one answers, we have all committed a sin. And in fact, we've also talked about the fact that when you enter into a room and someone's speaking, don't say salam. It's not recommended. But if you do, they are now all under the obligation to answer you until at least one of them answers. If one of them answers, then the obligation has been discharged from all of us. This is how the salam works. A really good example, let's not use the lecture. Let's say we're praying. Someone walks into the room and without thinking they say salam or salamun alaykum and no one answers because we're praying we have all committed a sin and that's why you say first you shouldn't have said salam but now that you said there's an obligation so someone in their prayer has to respond to you but because you're in your prayer faqiyan legally you answer in the exact way that it was said so if the person said salam you answer with salam you have to go with the minimum. You don't say, وَعَلَيْكُمْ السَّلَامُ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهُ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ No. This is what the Quran says. فَإِنْ بِتَحِيَّةٍ مِنْهَا This is a recommendation in general. أَوْ رُدُّهَا Or at least return it. In the same way that it was given to you. The salutation. How was it given to you? Return it. So because you're in your, in your prayer, you go with the minimal version. If the person said, Salamun Alaikum, you have to answer, Salamun Alaikum. Salamun Alaikum wa Rahmatullah, you have to say, Salamun Alaikum wa Rahmatullah, because you're in your prayer. Outside of the prayer, no, it's recommended that you give the full salutation when you can. If no one answers, everyone has committed a sin. Because there's an obligation to answer the Salam. There's a verse, it's very clear, all of Fuqaha say, 
When there is a salam that is said, you have to answer the salam. This is an example of a collective duty. If it's completed, if it's fulfilled sufficiently, one person answers. Generally, as a community, we say, yeah, someone answered the salam. It's enough. Another example, the death rituals. Someone passes away. The janaza rituals. There has to be a washing. There has to be a clothing. There has to be a burial. There has to be a prayer. If this happens in a community and no one takes care of those things, everyone in the community is now a sinner. A Muslim has passed away and we have not taken care of the death rituals. If one or two or ten or fifty step up and they take care of this, then the ten thousand others are no longer under an obligation. Someone has to step up. This is an example of wajib kifati. When we look at this hadith from Imam Sajjad, I would argue this is the Imam saying this is wajib kifati. This duty has to be performed sufficiently. So that when we look at the youth in the community, we say that they are receiving the mercy that the Imam says, this is the right over you, as those who are older than the youth, whoever is youth to you. And this is done through teaching and concealing their faults and supporting them and assisting them in life. It has to be done sufficiently. The next point. The next point is that the Imam started by saying, the way he constructed his saying, he said, The real right of the young over you is that you show mercy to them. And then he gave the details. How do you do that? The best application the best way you're going to show that mercy is through what? It's through knowledge. That's why he said from the beginning of the series, no matter where you look at our religion, it's all about knowledge. The foundation of it all is knowledge. And that's why we're starting with knowledge. Then, here the Imam is saying that the mercy that you display is done through knowledge. But it can mean two things. When he says fi in teaching, I translated it intentionally in an ambiguous way. There's two layers. You can have mercy when you teach while you're teaching. You're sitting in my class, so I show mercy in the way I teach you, so that you like my class, and it affects you in the proper way, and you want to come back. That's showing mercy in the class. That's why I teach you. And we all understand this. And this is what we're talking about, right? To be gentle in how you teach. But maybe the other meaning here of the Imam, when he says that you're going to show mercy to the youth in teaching them, is that the act of teaching them itself is the act of mercy. Which brings us back to the whole core of everything we're talking about. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. What's the best way to show mercy to your child? According to Imam Sajjad. The best way to show mercy to the youth of the community. The Imam says, not by buying them nice shoes, or drones, or PlayStation. This is nice. Maybe the child thinks this is the mercy. Imam Sajjad says, the mercy is through teaching them. This is the first layer. They may not realize what this is going to do to them later. What you're molding them into. What you're creating in terms of values. The kind of human being that you're now generating and releasing into the world. The influence that this can have later on. But this is the mercy. It's you teach. You conceal the faults. You give the confidence, you give the assistance and the support and the help you can so that this person goes into life, leaves this childhood behind and starts entering full, as a full ready human being into the world. 
And as I said, if we want to look at each statement of this short, short hadith from Imam Sajjad it would require a full lecture. I took one of these and I went back to some words. The Imam says, you have to conceal the faults of the youth. Go into academic journals and academic works. And I'm only looking at it from the point of view of psychology. And I focused on the relationship with your own child. We saw that it's broader than that. I made it focused. From there, you will have dozens, perhaps hundreds, but let's say dozens, which is enough already, of academic works that talk about the importance of concealing the faults of the child. If you have a child, do not go making their faults well known to all. This is not a right approach of raising. This is a mistake. If you look just at psychology, the Imam just gave us the key. He just gave you the general principle. He said, that's it. When there are faults, hide them. You deal with them, but the world doesn't need to know about all those faults. Unless there is a, some wisdom, some reason why people should know about them. Maybe they can do something, maybe they will influence, maybe they will help. But just in general, to publicize those faults, now that's a problem, that's a mistake. Now you go to psychology. We're not looking at Islamic psychology, just psychology in general. They say that, the literature, short term, it leads to humiliation, it leads to distress, and it has long-lasting effects on self-esteem and emotional well-being. 50 years later, this person is still lacking self-esteem. They still lack confidence in the world. Because when they were six, their their, as a child, their faults were publicized to the world. Social withdrawal, fearing judgment and criticism. They prefer to stay away from social situations. They don't know why. They would have to go to therapy to see why. But the reason was that they grew up with their faults constantly being publicized, shared with the world. Fear and anxiety. So public setting associated with negative emotions. Every time they're in a public setting, they never feel comfortable. There is a fear and an anxiety because in their mind, the world they grew up in, every time they're in a public setting, it's equated to being embarrassed. Everyone being reminded that this person has this and this and that faults. We're not saying you can't overcome this. We're saying if you go back to psychology, there's been a lot of literature and studies on this. And strong human beings can overcome all of this. You realize this happened and you say, that's it. The past is the past. All parents have shortcomings. This happened and we move on. And you find ways to deal with it. But we're saying in an ideal situation, if you knew what you were doing, you would try to avoid this. And the Imam gave you the instruction very clearly. He didn't go into the details, but today you go to psychology and you see that it fully matches this. Aggression and hostility, modeling or taking to extremes the behavior of harshness. You become someone who's very harsh in the world because you were treated very harshly. Your faults were exposed, you learned that nothing matters. So in fact, you use that as your defense mechanism. You become harsh and rude in the world because this is how you were treated when you were a child. You were treated not with harshness, you were treated with your faults being exposed. You become harsh and rude later in life. Impaired self-regulation. You can't manage yourself and your emotions. You can't control your thoughts and emotions properly. You don't self-regulate. Here, this is time to be subdued. Here, it's time to be patient. Here, it's time to be calm. You don't have that ability. Because of the way you were raised, right? To you, to get that ability is a lot more hard work. You have to work on that much more later in life. 
These are teachings. That's why we say there's a whole theory here, a whole theory of education, a whole theory of parenting. And we took just one piece, one line, was sent alayhi. The Imam only gave you the key. It's up to you to go understand why and what are the ramifications. And if you don't, what happens? Short term, medium term, long term, all of that, the Imam leads it to us. Okay? Looking at the time, maybe we should stop here so that uh, I think the next hadith kind of go together and I have to start kind of a new topic. Prayer is in about uh, 10 minutes. So maybe it's a good time to stop, inshallah, we'll continue. And the aim is that we wrap up the duties of the scholar, the responsibilities of the scholar, next lecture, inshallah, and we move to the rights and merits of the scholar. So, and then. So the idea or the plan, you will remember, we're headed towards the community. So once we wrap that up, we've talked about the learner, we've talked about the teacher, now we can talk about the community in general, and then we'll close that and we'll move to the types of knowledge, which we promised from early on that we would talk about, and inshallah we'll spend some time on that. And then we're start, starting slowly to move towards the end of our knowledge and reason Any questions, concerns, comments about anything we talked about today? The series in general? Uh, I just had a short thing. So I remember when you were talking about health. And I don't know if you mentioned this either. I remember hearing a lot of information in this. Yeah, you have the Imam and the Tadr, but what is Shaykhan? So, it doesn't say that the Tadr is Shaykhan, it says the steps of the Shaykhan. So, but there is really just that doubt in a sense. So, this is, this is a beautiful reference, and this is a very big topic too. The whole topic of Shaykhan in Islam, or Shaykhan specifically in Quran, and how he acts the way that the shaitan actually influences us. And so this verse is one of the ones that give us the, the key or the clue, right? And in this one, it doesn't say don't follow, as he said. It doesn't say don't follow the shaitan. Don't follow Iblis. It says don't walk in the footsteps of Iblis. There are footsteps that will eventually lead to the sin, to the haram, to the forbidden. Don't walk there. The moment you start on that path, you will end up somewhere else. So that's a, that's a whole discussion around avoiding the gray, avoiding the doubtful. And of course, as we said, go back to the last lecture, we talked even a little bit about it from a, I think we even mentioned a little bit the technical aspect of this. And there's, this is a very big discussion in fiqh because the, the scholars, they want to make your lives easier, right? So, so they're always trying to find the the easiest version of religion for us to apply. So if they were to say, live your life applying precaution in everything, there's a lot of stuff that we do that we should not be doing. But if you apply other principles, legal principles in Islam, that basically say, so long as you are not 100% sure that something is forbidden, then you may do it. Something is haram, then you may consume it. Something is najis, then you may touch it, and so on and so forth. These are the rulings or the principles that allow you to do a lot more things. They make your life a lot easier. But this is where your level of understanding of the religion and what it means to you. It's one thing to say, I feel like doing something, of course I want my life to be easier, and so on and so forth. That's one way to look at things, practically. The other way to look at things is to say, but what is the effect of this on my soul? What does it mean for me to enter into this gray area? I know this is a gray area. I have doubts about it. What does it mean that I enter it? Is there an effect on my soul or not? And the great say, this is where the slippery slope starts. So it becomes a question, a very personal question for me. How much importance do I give to this? We, and the example we gave is, you know, if you sit there playing with a live electrical cord, eventually you will get electrocuted. 
This is what the Hidubaita are saying. You keep playing with fire, eventually you will get burned. Do you care enough about religion to do the same and just avoid playing with fire and avoid playing with electricity in the first place or not? Right? So it becomes a very spiritual questioning that is internal to you. More than it is just a fatih discussion that you can just go back to your fatih and look at the ruling and say, okay, that's it. He says it's okay to do it, so I do it. Even though you can, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a much higher level spiritually than this, than doing the bare minimum and getting by. Right. right? Any other questions? Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.